This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Jerome Schneider. He's the head of short-term portfolio management at PIMCO. If you are remotely interested in fixed income bonds, trading, uh, the plumbing of how finance works, this is a masterclass in tremendous details of how the fixed income market works. It's absolutely fascinating. If you are remotely considering any sort of fixed income investing, working on a bond desk, being a portfolio manager of any sort, then this is a conversation you have to listen to. It's absolutely um, fascinating. With no further ado, my conversation with PIMCO's Jerome Schneider. My special guest today is Jerome Schneider. He is the head of short-term portfolio management and funding at PIMCO, which manages about $1.75 trillion as of the end of 2017. Prior to joining PIMCO in 2008, he was a senior managing director at Bear Stearns, specializing in credit and mortgage-related funding transactions. He held a number of various positions on the municipal and fixed income trading desks at Bear. Morningstar named him the Fixed Income Fund Manager of the Year for 2015. He manages three separate funds, one over $14 billion, the other over $8 billion, the smallest a mere $2.2 billion. Jerome Schneider, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks very much, Barry. It's great to be here. Um, this is the perfect time to be speaking with you, given everything that's going on in uh, with the Fed, with rising rates, with the yield curve. But let me start with a little bit of background. How did you first get interested in finance? Uh, pretty easily on. I had a great uncle who was always sort of fascinated with the stock market at that point in time and had bought me a handful of shares, you know, like everybody does. And from that fascination, you quickly realize that, you know, the power of capital. And I think at the, at the age of 11, I had, I had asked my dad, you know, this stock market thing is pretty interesting. Let's read about it. Let's read about it in the Wall Street Journal. And for my 12th birthday, he actually took me to the stock exchange on the floor. And for a young chap from Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, that is, uh -huh. that's a, a pretty, pretty empowering thing to you know, see your dream uh, location come true. So for me, it was a trip to the stock exchange and to see the Yankees, who I loved at that point in time, and, uh, and, and really put together in your mind how you actually get to that point from being 12 to being a young professional and the steps it takes. So that was a that was a magical moment in my in my formative years. And that was back in the day when you could both a get on the floor of the stock exchange. Right. You can't do that really today. And b it's not just the front for a television studio. That was where stocks were actually traded back then. Yeah, and and amazing in thinking about it, you know, I was I was probably hardly 5 feet tall at that point in time. You know, it was a scrum, and this is the mid early '80s. And I look back at the photos we took, and funniest thing, obviously, is the people and how they're dressed. And and, mm -hmm. and the second of all, it was it was a functioning uh, entity in a physical sense, not just a literal sense and and of a spiritual sense as it as it as it is now, along with computers. But it's a physical breathing entity. And, and today, obviously, it's changed. And in, in NYSE is and all the stock exchanges have changed their their functioning perspective to co-adapt to technology. Um, but I think more importantly, and this is the thing that I would say, is that as a young person, having the ability to have that experience and learning from people what it took, takes to get there, and then putting those stepping stones in place, seeing the right people, understanding what it, they took to get there, even though they might be 10, 20, 30, 40 years your senior, that's a very powerful thing. And I think one of the one of the key things for people, whether they're interested in finance or otherwise, is to find people that will serve as mentors, rabbis, whatever it is, to help empower them to achieve their goals in that kind of way. And I was just fortunate to have a ton of people around me. Sounds like that was a formative experience for you. Yeah, it, it was. It was great. And and I think, you know, people recognize that at that point in time as as odd as it might be from a young kid in, in Oklahoma City, you know, it might have been one of those things that it was a uh, a way out, so to speak. And so for me, Oklahoma is a great place to be from and, and is a great place to be going back to his family. But at the same time, I haven't lived there since high school. So. No, no interest in being a roughneck and working in the oil fields or any of that uh, uh, not physical in, labor? Not at this point. I have enough. Well, I mean, that was the other formative experience in my life, actually, being being exposed to the roughnecks. And when you grow up in Oklahoma and Texas and your whole family is exposed to the oil industry in the late 70s and early 80s, the, during the oil during bust. During the oil crash, yeah, the sure. The oil bust 
basically was an eye-opening experience. And, and frankly, that was one of the things that led me to want to understand capital markets. Because, you know, when you're in the oil business, you're putting together a ton of capital. A lot of it's not your money. And, mm-hmm. and, and so your incentives are very different. And at the same time, when you think about the ramifications of a repricing event, in that case, it's oil and everybody... When you're sitting in the oil patch, thinks oil prices only go up. Mm-hmm. But as a young kid, you see everybody going from having literally Learjets and third and fourth lake homes and multiple cars to nothing overnight. And you look around, and we had a very modest upbringing. You know, I would say that, you know, in retrospect, it was we our downside was fairly limited compared to some people. Not a lot of leverage. Well, not a lot of leverage, so to speak. But at the same time, not a lot of the different upside. But I or learned at that point in time. The strength of leverage and the danger of leverage, <laughs> which oddly, as my professional career evolved into fixed income, that obviously became a keystone to that. So, so you go to University of Pennsylvania, and then you get your MBA at NYU Stern? Correct. Um, and what was your first job right out of uh, school? So when I graduated Penn, uh, I wanted sort of a, a, a degree that was related to finance, but really more economics related. And so I had a more customized degree in international finance, economics, and international relations. And so Penn was a perfect place to do that. Unfortunately, when I was graduating or starting an interview in 1994, uh, my background was a series of internships for small, uh, from small, a small shop in Oklahoma City called Stiefel Nicholas. Oh, and, sure. And then, which, which is now not such a small not shop. Not such a small shop, but they were really focused on muni bonds back then, which is a good and bad thing. And the other one was running a guy's campaign for state treasurer of Oklahoma, which was successful, but that was both, uh, both took me back to Oklahoma. And, and so as a result, at Penn, you're looking around for internships. Most of the kids from the East Coast had you know, connections to New York and Wall Street and things like that. And I didn't have any of those connections, so to speak. So I was really trying to find my way to get to Wall Street at that point in time. And, and it took a little bit more effort. That combined with the fact that when I was graduating in 1994, it wasn't the best job market in, in the world. And when you think about it, you had to get in on any floor whatsoever. So mm-hmm. I interviewed I interviewed with people who were trying to sell limited partnerships, limited people who were trying to trade stocks and be in the operations group. And, and oddly, coincidentally, the job I took was with uh, Bear Stearns. And I joined their operations training program uh, at, at that tender young age uh, for a very small salary, but a great opportunity to learn. Let's talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve today and the impact they have on the fixed income market. First off, what do you think about today's Federal Reserve? Yeah, I think today's Federal Reserve is one thing is very different than it was before, you know, to try to be as transparent as possible. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing because the purpose of the Federal Reserve is to communicate effective monetary policy. And unlike Federal Reserves of two decades, three decades ago, who used to do things in the silence of night or affect open money market operations. And, right. and you simply saw the cash mover in or out at a specific time during the day at, because they were adjusting the the excess reserves in, in the repo markets. Uh, now, it actually is quite effective because what they hope to do is manage expectations over the medium term. One, in terms of uh, clearly in terms of growth of the economy uh, and also unemployment, clearly, but also in terms of inflation. And that second metric is what's incredibly important to the communication uh, effort. And so being communicative obviously comes with its criticism. It comes with its criticism because people want when they people communicate, want them to be succinct and clear and precise. And if you don't have those three things, which aren't necessarily the same, um, people start to offer their own criticism. Let's go over that. Succinct, clear, and precise, meaning you want it short and sweet, right. you want it accurate, although there's a difference between precision and, and, and accurate. Preci- and precision is the accountability. The best, the thing about the Fed, though, and people fail to realize, is that the Fed wants to maintain its optionality. And that's what it's continued to do, not only during this hiking cycle, but really since the financial crisis. And in doing so, they want to find themselves to basically point a direction but they mm-hmm. want to alter the course and speed of that direction over a period of time. And I think one of the failures of the market, quite honestly, is understanding and comprehending that reconciliation process. Frankly, because much of the market can't imagine themselves as being that central banker in that seat. Mm-hmm. But if you were, you know, like any good parent, you wouldn't necessarily want to be painted in the corner by your kid. You right. know, the kid comes home and says, you know, mom, dad, I want to eat junk food for the next year. They're going to say, well, let's try to have a balance of it. Let's figure out, we'll have some days that are healthy, some days that you, you can go and eat potato chips all day. In this situation, the Fed wants to simply be as clear as they possibly can at that point in time without being fully committed to an ingredient mix, which they can't 
fully bake you know a masterpiece in the future and and that's ultimately what they want to do is try to be as clear as they can at this point in time and balance it to manage the expectations of the marketplace without upsetting him and that's what people have called the put of you know Bernanke Greedspin right. whatever Yellen put and, and I think that there's a there's a there's a trade-off in that, and that's the insurance policy or the cost, if you will, uh, of the policy measure of be, trying to be as open, open-minded, and communicative as they have been. Some people have said that the transparency of the Fed and this constant communication has made the job of the bond manager easier. And others have said, no, they say one thing and it turns out not to be true, and they do another. It's made it more challenging. Where, where do you fall on that continuum? I, I, I honestly think that the marketplace is has uh, has evolved in such a way that you're not simply looking at a single variable at this point in time, being the Fed. In fact, there's other influences you have to look at, which is obviously the global influence. We can see that you know just because you have a view on U.S. interest rates or U.S. monetary policy doesn't mean that it's not influenced by other policies around the world. We saw that basically two years ago at the end of 2015 when global financial conditions worsened. It obviously effectuated Fed policy. So, as a trader, as a portfolio manager, as a as a manager of capital for our clients, the thing we want to be most mindful of is these inputs, these variables, and mitigating these risks in a way that produces positive risk-adjusted returns. The bottom line is is that. There's just as much forecasting that we're going to do and think about at PIMCO, looking at the macroeconomics, which has clearly been the baseline of our forecasting for 40 years plus at our firm. But you also have to incorporate it, the evolving market dynamics, and most importantly, the market perception of the market pricing, meaning sometimes sometimes understanding where the market is, whether it's overpriced, mispriced, whatnot, is actually just as important to your portfolio positioning as anything else in the policy measures that you might observe from the Fed or the data that comes every week or whatnot. So let, let's stay with the Fed because you're really the right person to ask this question. The work you did in the back office in the early parts of your career, uh, doing the settlements and DTC and all that other stuff, Explain what the Fed is actually doing mechanically when they raise or lower rates. I don't think the average person yeah. understands what this process is like. Yeah, it, it actually, you know, it actually isn't as complicated now as it probably once was, simply because of the magic of computers and mm-hmm. and electronic money, so to speak. But effectively, what you're doing is effectuating monetary reserves, excess reserves, in multiple ways. The first one basically being that, you know, as we've seen over the past few years, even with the emergency monetary stimulus, that they're able to grow their balance sheet, which creates excess reserves into the system in, in a variety of ways. And that means they're purchasing bonds, purchasing mortgages, purchasing treasuries, which increases the amount of monetary supply, the money available to help offset, you know, offset the conditions that they're trying to counter. Meaning they, they take these paper um, assets and bring them onto their balance sheet in exchange for actual dollars. Correct. And I think this is important because that's a semi-permanent way of establishing reserves. Whereas what they used to do is what they referred to as open market operations, which possibly are, you know, are returning more to the colloquial. But open market operations for decades was simply the Fed coming in and purchasing bonds on short, short-term short operations, repo operations, mm-hmm. to buy bonds effectively versus lending out cash to the marketplace. And by doing that, they would make small incremental adjustments to the effective Fed funds rate or the Fed funds target rate at that point in time. And actually, because it wasn't posted on Bloomberg or wasn't set at a point in time, you, you for in the late 70s, early 80s, you wouldn't actually know that the Fed was actually targeting or adjusting interest rates until you actually saw those processes or felt them in the marketplace occurring in the short-term markets. So you said semi-permanent earlier when discussing um, what we can, I guess, call quantitative easing. Why semi-permanent? Because some of these asset classes have a maturity date and eventually run off, or they could always decide to unwind at a later date? What makes it permanent versus semi-permanent? Well, we've evolved now over the past two years into an acceptance and, and actually implementation of a normalization process of our emer- of our monetary policy. We're moving from uh, emergency emergency measures to mm-hmm. one that's more normalized and going trying to go back to where we were to pre-crisis mode. So what does that mean? We have to take our balance sheet from what it was, and it's now grown to $4.2 trillion in size, and gently decrease it over time through basically, um, through basically letting it amortize down 
mortgages that the Fed owns will pay down. Treasuries will eventually go off the balance sheet. And in doing so, that's going to gradually tighten monetary conditions as those excess reserves, as those excess monies get removed from the marketplace and the repurchases of and, and, and the Fed doesn't repurchase as much of the securities as are maturing in their portfolio. So it's a passive reduction in that process. And it's very important because for the marketplace because it is a it's it's a it's a mile marker effectively that we are heading toward not just higher rates but a normalization process which is going to gently move real rates higher over over a period of time. It's not gently. Smart. I hear you say well, it's gently because because it's just such a gradual. It's slow a gradual process. thing, and and as Janet Yellen likes to say, hey, it's in the background, nothing to see here, just move on. And in an ideal world, that's what's going to happen, and I actually think it will work out that way. People at the beginning were very concerned that the Fed was going to come in and sell all their assets right. and do it all overnight. But what we've learned from the Fed, and this is what I think is, a, you know, getting back to my point about the market reacting and the market's perception, that that would be foolhardy because the mark because the Fed wants to always maintain their optionality. And so the reality is is that the Fed wants to keep those assets on this balance sheet, not only to not upset the market, but also to maintain optionality for the future. But as it's right now, they've been pretty clear about the prescription of how much they're going to increase that reduction. Uh, I guess that's a oxymoron, but increase that reduction of their balance sheet over the next few quarters by a prescribed amount. And and that is been forecasted and digested by the market. And it's not that that upsetting at all to the marketplace, as we've seen over the past few years. I was always stunned at the, the claims in the beginning of QE Hey, you know, they're going to have to unwind this and it's going to be so disruptive and it it just didn't make any sense. All these all this paper has a maturity date. You could just let it and and they're not all the same date. There is a a, a curve the that duration curve. You could just let that run off naturally. Why was there such fear that oh, you know, when the Fed unwinds, it's going to be really problematic? Well, the, the question is who is the incremental buyer? And mm. and that's actually a real question to posit today, but in a different uh, a different size and a different scale. There's one thing that if you're going to let you know an entire four trillion dollars worth of assets run off the balance sheet of excess reserves very quickly, and there's another thing just to have incremental supply coming to the market. One is a five hundred you know a five hundred billion dollar plus question, and the other is a four trillion dollar question. Right. But the question in both of them is who is that incremental buyer of treasuries? Is it foreign central banks? Is there retail investors? Is there corporate cash investors who need to buy this? Um, are there banks who need to buy it for regulatory purposes? Not so much anymore. But what but, about just the maturity issue is if, hey, I'm holding 2020 paper, when 2020 rolls around, uh, all right, the paper matures, it goes away, I get cash, Nothing actually hits the market unless they decide to reinvest that. Right. That that is correct. So, no, well, what hits the market? They have to reinvest. They're reinvesting a certain amount, but not all of their maturities, and so they're doing it in a pro rata portion across the curve. And so they're trying not to disrupt that allocation of what is already coming to market. And 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 that was the key: is they're not trying to shape. This is not an operation twist. Mm-hmm. So they're not trying to reshape the yield curve here. What they are simply trying to do is reduce their overall footprint to the treasury market over time in a methodical manner. We're, we're deep in the weeds. This is pure fixed income wonkery. And there is an audience that will really appreciate that. It, it is wonkery, but it's important. The one takeaway for, for, for your listeners is that the wonkery is the magic of what, how people are going to think about adapting to higher rates going forward. And that is the facet which is most uh, most misunderstood when we get to these periods of monetary policy. Monetary policy is fascinating, but if you don't understand what's going on, it can be pretty dangerous. How many times over the past 10 years have uh, have we heard, oh, the bull market in bonds is over? Is this multi-decade bond bull market finally over? Well, I think yeah, it's too early to say, first of all. There's so many factors in the bond market that led to the bull conditions as it, as we knew it for you know many years, um, the, the dollar, the view of the dollar, the, the United States, the reemergence of of other factors on the on the global forces, um, and, and I think that when we think about this, it's not a pivot point that you can simply say this is the exact pivot that we're moving back the other way. In fact, I think there's more factors today that come into that condition uh, that we need to be brought into. One, Such as? Uh, well, obviously, Treasury supply. We're dealing with larger fiscal uh, stimulus at this point in time, tax cuts, things like that. They're going to impact um, you know, the fiscal side of the equation and the need to borrow more money in the United States. Uh, for- Do you think that is a recipe for higher rates, or, or does all that supply hitting the market 
um, it, have it, other it, factors. It's, it, it's one. It's one factor in this. The other factor is the demand side, and I think that that is the other factor, as we mentioned previously. Whether it comes from foreign central banks or foreign investors or even U.S. investors, you know that is an important factor and condition. And more specifically, the demographics, which people and we at Pimco have spent a lot of time thinking about, the demographic factor is actually one that is in favor of bonds over the next few years as people look to de-risk and move into higher yielding asset classes. You know, the higher rates right now are something to incentivize people to finally reallocate potentially out of higher risk uh, allocations and moving to the safety of bonds for that current income and current yield that, that they offer. And so there is a there's there's a, a variety of factors on the pro and con side, but to simply declare this as the as the pivot point of the end of the bull market it, it, it's, it's too early to it's too early to determine. And, and more more importantly, there is a growing uh, awareness in the in the global economy of the improving factors globally that are going into the data, not just in the United States, the Eurozone, even Japan mm. is, is starting to see that. So as we have evolved um, over the past 30 years from the bull market into the bull market, it's the global forces that will ultimately decide whether this was the end of the bull market or not. So you reference supply. Let's go back to that a second. It seems like there has been, I don't know if the word shortage is the right word, but when you look at high-quality, sovereign, fixed-income products. doesn't seem like there's been an overwhelming supply of that. Right. So the key to this is the plumbing. When people think about where have bonds gone, where has safety gone, it's all in the plumbing. The repo markets have basically been uh, detrimentally affected by regulation globally that have put constraints on bank balance sheets, to, to which basically function as the grease for treasury markets and, and, and high-quality bond markets around the world. So if you put a constraint on the amount of grease in the system, the uh-huh. repo markets, that affects liquidity and that affects pricing and, and otherwise. So that's one element. Ultimately, you know, when you also think about it on the, on the supply side, or the, is, is also the demand side. And the demand over the past five, six, seven years as we've gone into emergency stimulus mode globally has been the central banks mm-hmm. buying the safe assets. And so they've been buying bonds to help produce this warm blanket around risk assets globally for the past five to 10 years. And as a result, there's a dearth of high quality safe assets that people have been searching for. So they've been the number one buyer, being the central banks, Mm -hmm. of these assets over a period of time. And as they reduce that footprint, there are people who have actually needed to buy these safe assets will actually emerge as a marginal buyer in uh, you know over the next few years. So it could be a nice a nice handoff, you know, if things go according to plan. Although nothing ever goes smoothly, as you know, Barry. So we have to be prepared for those repricings, and that's and that's what us as active managers at Pimco, that's what we're poised to take advantage of. So you mentioned that we we haven't been running giant deficits. Um, other immediately after the financial crisis, there was a huge set of deficits. But that seemed to work its way down pretty quickly over seven years or so. The new tax bill is at least a trillion and a half dollars. They're talking about a big infrastructure spend, all of which raises the question, should there be a reissuance of much longer term bonds, be it treasuries at 30 years, 50 years? Some people have talked about 100 year bonds. Should we do that? And what are the odds of that actually happening? Yeah, I mean, optically, people would say take advantage of the low rates and, and issue uh, and term out the debt. And there's obviously been do some 50 a, lo- year a lot of countries who have done that. Mexico issued 100 year bonds. You know, there's there's a good variety of, of precedent for this. But ultimately, you have to go where the demand is. And when you look at the committees, the, the Treasury Borrowing uh, Committee, the TBAC, um, it, they've actually assessed this. And, and while it was floated in the very beginning by the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, yeah. you know, the reality is, is that there wasn't a good demand assessment concluded at that that point in time. And so you don't want to issue into a void. No issuer, whether corporate or sovereign, wants to issue into a void where there's not enough demand because that means your execution is not going to be good. And right. more importantly, the secondary liquidity will be detri- will be, uh, will be marginalized. Mm-hmm. And so what they're going to do is simply add on to existing maturities. And more precisely, and this is what is important for investors at this point in time, is increase allocations to the front end of the yield curve, specifically in the T-bill space. And I think what's noteworthy that, about- That happens to be your playground. Which happens to be my playground. And and I always love more people in my playground, but they're going to add $500 billion worth of, of supply over the course of the next year, probably backloaded to the second half of this year, to that playground. 
And so what does that mean? Well, it, it's great for those investors looking for safety, looking for you know marginal increase in, in, in yields as that new supply hits, but it doesn't do a lot to the asset liability, the caution or the urge of people wanting to term out the liability structure of the U.S., although what is noteworthy is the fact that when you look at the overall construct, the average life of the U.S. debt is actually not that much different than than what was previously prescribed. So, you know, they've done a pretty good job about you know, about managing that asset liability mismatch. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the modern markets. And in particular, on the equity side, we've seen a, a fairly substantial shift away from active management towards passive management. And yet the data shows on the bond side active management actually adds alpha. What, why, or the bond equivalent for, of alpha, what, what, is there a different name for that, or do we just call that alpha? We call it alpha. Call it alpha. Um, why does active management uh, generate alpha on the bond side? Well, it, it's not magic, it, and it takes a lot of work to, to, have that, uh, to have that. And the data does you know, quite clearly point to the fact that in fixed income, active management does clearly add benefits to clients' portfolios. And some of it comes from offensive, meaning learn to how to create better risk-adjusted portfolios, i.e. there's income that you can have in your portfolio mm-hmm. and some capital appreciation when times are good by picking the right sectors and creating a diversified portfolio. But Barry, this is the more important thing. As we go pivot into this time of the cycle, when we don't have quantitative easing and the warm blanket of monetary policies globally really supporting all asset valuations, the ability to differentiate risk asset classes is incredibly powerful. And in fixed income, we need to be thinking about the ways to create that diversification and steering clear of those pitfalls that might might be in portfolio construction. We saw that clearly in 2005, 2006, and 2007 when you had the evolution of structured products, the evolution of uh, abundant leverage in the marketplace, even in my own my own lovely repo markets. You had mispriced bonds and structured products that simply weren't sound to the AAA uh, moniker that many, many rating agencies gave them. Um, but if you have the ability to discern, re-underwrite, and distinguish between these different credit risks, whether it's corporate credit risk or structured credit risks, and then understand how they interplay with each other, you can actually steer clear of a lot of dangers and pitfalls that passive management would steer right into. And the case in point I would point to is even in my own domain, the short-term universe, and I call short-term zero to five years, we manage on our team $200 plus billion in that sector right now. The vote, the vote of confidence that we have is that we had steered clear of a lot of credits that were mispriced in 2005, 2006, and 2007. We had steered clear of asset-backed commercial paper that many folks were just simply buying an additional ba- because it was an additional one basis point, one one hundredth of a percent. Come on, additional. really? Exactly. All that risk for a bip? That's crazy. But that's the way the market was functioning in the cash equivalent space. Uh-huh. And when you got into the crisis, people were basically underwriting liquidity risk for marginal income. They didn't understand the downside risk they have. And to this day, I hear still people when I go visit into retail branches, which I do quite honestly, because I want to hear about people's experience with managing their cash. When I hear about that, they'll say, you know what? I still have these auction rate securities in my portfolio because they're still frozen or this, that, the other Still thing. frozen a decade later. Some are, wow. some are. But you, I, you know, once a year, somebody will come up to me with a story. And the thing about it is in order to understand the value and the perception of where the marketplace is going, you have to take a step back and understand what the influences are and more importantly, have the resources to discern and understand that. And so my background while being formatively in operations and the repo desk and the derivative desk at Bear Stearns and understanding structured products because we ran, at, at that point in time, a funding vehicle related to structured investment vehicles. One or two, sure. Vehicles. <laughs> the, that was a magical time because it allowed me to understand and have a good array of, of knowledge and build that array and arsenal of knowledge that when I came to PEMCO as a portfolio manager, I understood all these different markets and underplayed them. And, and more importantly, as we think about our team construction, the portfolio management team around me, we have people who are specialized in corporate bonds, in understanding non-dollar events. We have a person who's focused solely on funding. And the beauty of this, and, and you mentioned this in my title, I'm the head of our short-term portfolio management and funding. The key element to understanding liquidity management is funding. The key element to understanding short-term markets, which is interest rates, mm-hmm. is funding and liquidity. They're all the same. And if you are an interest rate 
If you're an interest rate practitioner, if you're a saver, if you are thinking about ways to manage your capital for capital preservation plus some income, and you don't have an insight to where funding markets are trading, meaning the cost of capital, uh-huh. that, that's like baking a cake without any flour. So it doesn't. It, it might look good, but it doesn't taste very good, and it might fall on you. So let let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of of some of these processes, specifically at Bear Stearns. Was it at Bear Stearns you worked on repo conduit financing companies? Correct. That that sounds. And we're going to go a little bit into the weeds here, but that sounds like that is really the specific plumbing of how dollars find their way to specific. Assets. Describe a little bit of exactly what that that is. So the premise of what we were trying to do was you have to have a fundamental belief in understanding what a repo agreement is, a repurchase agreement. And all a repurchase agreement is, is a borrowing of, uh, you're basically borrowing dollars or borrowing funds in exchange for collateral. And that collateral is usually bonds. But the beauty of a repo agreement is that it's over collateralized. So you might be posting $100 worth of bonds, but only get 70 cents worth of cash away from it. Sounds safe. So the beauty of a repo, and I still believe this to this day, and I think it's one of the most underappreciated assets in the entire world, is that repos in general are mark-to-market daily, so Uh your risk is limited, and the fact is you can calibrate them, the haircuts, the excess margin, to what you think the risk is. And so if you're a good practitioner, your understanding of, of the marketplace is simply what is the value of the collateral you hold on any given point in time, mm-hmm. and do you have enough excess margin? The idea here is that with any experience and understanding, you can actually back into what you think is a, a superb asset, even better than a treasury because you have the over collateralization. So what we are doing in that marketplace is is looking and lending through what we, what we called liquid funding, which was a structured investment vehicle at that point in time, to borrow money in the, in the funds market and lend it to a variety of clients and do it on an over-collateralized basis. And, and it worked very well, very terrific until about, uh, you know, until about 2007. And at that point in time, the funding markets, not the asset markets, but the funding markets deteriorated to the point that the, 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 the optics and, and frankly, the economics didn't work out. And so we, had, we closed that business you know, and all our equity holders got their capital back. When did Bayer close that business? So we closed it in early 2007. Real and you were at Bear. You weren't there through the entire crisis. I, when did you leave I was, Bear? I was actually there. I was I was there until the very end and actually worked one day at J.P. Morgan, oh, and, that, really? and retired from J.P. Morgan and then went to uh, went out to California after uh, two things. One, my wife wanted me to move out there for her family, but um, a gentleman by the name of Paul McCulley uh, called me up on the phone. Who previous was my, guest on the show? And, sure. And, and Paul is a great friend of mine and a, an avid fisherman and a great economist who who uh, obviously you know coined the term Minsky moment everything mm-hmm. else but to have him sitting there you know as my partner uh, sitting on the desk and welcoming me was a opportunity that I simply couldn't pass could up could not so, say could not say no and he's now at Cornell I think in the fall teaching and then back in uh, Newport Beach that is correct he's, he's he's teaching many students he's a great teacher and more importantly he's a great communicator and he was a great uh, great mentor and, and and sponsor of me at PIMCO uh, you know in the very early years because I walked in from one storm into and obviously at PIMCO you're on the defensive at that point in time so so before we leave bear I have to ask what was it like at Bear Stearns in that sort of storm that that had to be just a wild experience so I think what you when you think about Bear, Bear was a meritocracy. Pimco's a meritocracy mm-hmm. in a way. You work hard. You try to strive. You try to put all the pieces together. And, and I think people at that point in time uh, were were focused on the markets and the market perception. And, and I'm not here to rehash history per se, but I think it's important that there is a tremendous amount of lessons to be learned from that whole experience. And fortunately for me, and actually a lot of my other ex-Bear brethren, you can look around the street now. They're everywhere. At, they're everywhere. Sure. And, and there was something. There's a lot that, of quality people coming out of there. There was a tremendous amount of quality people and more importantly, we all learned from each other and we learned from the experience and we were able to grow out of it. And and, and whether it was market forces or internal issues or, or whatnot, I think there's a lot of experiences and a lot of history that we can go back and read from and glean information from. And, and I'm actually fortunate. And I, I, you know, Bear was a great sponsor of my upbringing, allowed me to, uh, allowed me to grow. And every time I got, you know, I got, I needed some more challenge. They gave me an incremental, a bit, a bit of uh, a line to go and run with. And, and, and PIMCO was the same way. We try to groom young people to do the same. And, and that, I think, is a very strong parallel into the success I, of the I, It looks like that the Bear Stearns acquisition by Jamie Dimon at, at J.P. Morgan turned out to be a really good fit. Is is that your perspective from the outside? or Because I, I haven't heard any stories of—usually there's a, a takeover, there's all sorts of— 
tumult and turmoil, and you hear, I I haven't really heard a lot of that sort of well, chatter. Being being the fact that I worked there for all of one day, I probably don't have that much insight <laughs> so, insight to that. But fair enough. but I, but I would say that you know for most people, um, you know, ten years on almost now, I think it's one of those things that people take it as a as a learning as a learning lesson, mm-hmm. and, and 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 the market as a whole clearly has. So we've heard the expression over the years. Um, the bond market is supposed to be the smart money. What's your take on that? Uh, I, I would hope so. Um, I'm not saying that's no it's no pat on the back to myself, but I think that when you look at how capital markets function, we try to be more proactive than most in terms of allocating capital on the active management side than most. And I think that's a pretty powerful thing when you think about the smart money aspect. And, and a lot of that smart money is because smart money or not, Central banks and some of them are very, very smart and they're very sophisticated. Um, are are in that realm as well, and so they're not necessarily, you know, with the exception of one or two central banks in the equity realm uh, uh, yet. <laughs> but Japan, I, other than Japan, who else is in? Uh, 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 Sweden, I was going to say. I'm sorry, Switzerland. Uh, but I would say those two. Um, those two are primarily, you know, the ETFs in Japan are clearly the big one. But the smart money. There's probably smart, a lot more smart people in that fixed income market. Now, what it means, though, is that uh, that's the institutional side. As a retail investor, you can't be complacent about how you're thinking about your fixed income allocation, mm-hmm. especially amongst rising rates. And so the challenge for the retail investor now is to challenge their financial advisors, kick the tires, understand how their portfolios perform in upward rate environments, albeit slowly, and more importantly, where on the interest rate curve they're, they're destined. Then the second element to pay attention to is just because you've earned a very handsome coupon, very handsome income over the past three, four, five years in your um, you know, in your portfolios because you've reached out the curve in terms of risk, maybe you're invested in a high yield fund, something like that. Take that into consideration now and take that into consideration how you've derived that income, what kind of risks are you taking, and do some homework. And maybe it's time to de-risk a little and look in the yield curve shorter in the short-term side and take advantage of you know mutual funds or ETFs out there that may might offer better risk adjusted returns. We haven't talked much about inflation, obviously a key factor for the Fed and for the bond market. What are your thoughts on TIPS, Treasury and Inflation Protected Securities? Yeah, they've moved up quite a bit over the uh, the break-evens, or that's the inflation uh, mm-hmm. expectation, has moved up quite a bit over the past few weeks. And they're probably fair in value at this point in time. The, the key factor here is, is that what does that mean to the Fed itself? And to the Fed itself is actually probably a positive sign that the market is repricing in a forward expectation of inflation similar to their own uh, similar to their own views moving forward meaning the low periods of inflation were transitory now the market sort of agreeing with that and that's a positive thing for the fed to basically accept the fact that we're probably going to have higher rates to come because if the market can accept higher inflation then that basically says the market's also accepting the notion that we're going to get higher rates to come but the key here is 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 not just higher real rates, meaning risk-adjusted rates, but it's higher nominal rates. And for a fixed-income investor, when they hear about higher rates, they tend to get scared. But this isn't a time to get scared because of higher rates. It's actually a time to embrace those higher rates going forward. We have been speaking with Jerome Schneider, head of short-term portfolio management and funding. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things bond-related. You can find that wherever finer podcasts are sold, iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on Bloombergview.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Drum. Thank you so much for doing this. This is really fascinating stuff, and I love going deep into the weeds uh, on some of these issues. I had no idea you knew Paul McCullough. You know I know Paul pretty well, Yeah, right? absolutely. We, uh, we fish in Maine every year, although um, lately he's been sort of uh, all around the world and, and, and hasn't. I don't think he's been doing uh, all that much fishing. I remember when he went from clean-cut PIMCO to... The Jesus version of Paul McCullough. He had <laughs> hair past the shoulders, a long beard, and then kind of came back to the clean cut version. It was kind of an interesting um, transition. 
Well, you know, I think he was trying to scare the fish out of the water at that point uh, in time. <laughs> <laughs> I think he scared everybody else. Uh, you know, a few questions I didn't get to. We, we touched upon Bear Stearns. I was really fortunate that I got a little lucky and I was pretty much out of equities and heavily into bonds and shorts. So the financial crisis wasn't emotionally painful. However, I had you know, I had friends that were getting fired everywhere. I used to send out an email list of about 2,000 people, and it was astonishing starting in late, I want to say late 07, early 08, I could track the economy based on the amount of bad email bounces that out of this list of 2,000 by the time the crisis was done was down to like 900. That many people had either switched jobs or lost their jobs. You were right in the eye of the hurricane. What was that like? You know, I, I remember, uh, obviously I remember like it was yesterday, but I, I think the important factor that we, we all think about is is that the market, we were in unprecedented times, and the playbook, so to speak, was it was one that had to be consistently evolving. And, and you know, history will try to reconstruct all the minutia that happened, you know, during the financial crisis, you know, starting with the... Uh, the, uh, the funds that uh, basically were, were gated at uh, Parabas in 2007 sure. and obviously the Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns Asset Management Funds and things like that. But I, I think what we recognize is the fact that there was a structural breakage. And that structural breakage was, number one, investors failed to understand risk. And that was institutional and retail investors. And number two... The, the the central bankers themselves weren't doing anything help to weren't doing anything to provide guardrails to sufficient enough to offset the leverage points that they saw in the marketplace on a real time basis. They 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 were aware of them, but at the same time, so let, it was let our me interrupt job. you right sure. there because I hear from the same people depending on what's going on in the market. The Fed, you know, this isn't a free market anymore. There's too much intervention. The Fed should just let the market do its thing and stop distorting it. But a few years early, it's like, when is the Fed going to step in and fix this? It's a disaster. It seems they want it both ways. Am I overstating that? Or well, I, I think that, you know, and this goes, I'm sort of talking both sides of the coin here. From PIMCO's perspective, they were, we were clearly, clearly early to the game. We were starting to see signs of the housing market in 2005, 2006, right. when we sort of pulled in our, our reins with regard to that and that risk. Actually, at Bear, at that same point in time, we you know, from our perspective and many of the businesses we ran, we actually were, we we resisted doing transactions that we saw getting done in the marketplace because we thought they were over-levered and simply did not make sense. Mm -hmm. The irony of the whole thing, even though we were prudent in many regards, we were obviously the first ones to take it well, on. Well, a huge exposure to mortgages right. and housing, that was their specialty. But at the same time, it wasn't just mortgages and housing, it was equities, it was correlation trades and things like that, mm -hmm. that basically brought the entire market to, to where we became. And so the mark-to-market -market issues, just generally speaking, was one because of incremental leverage requires whenever there is a mark-to-market to, that you have to pony up additional capital. and that or, is, or sell assets. Or sell assets, and that's the digital spin. And so it wasn't necessarily one asset class. It wasn't just mortgages. It was, it, was, it was everything. And so that's the correlation that you have to understand when you get into these situations that are, that's pretty, you know, it's pretty damaging to portfolios. So leverage works great, assuming that you understand the cost of that leverage and you can play defense against it, which is why us understanding that cost of that capital and funding cost Mm -hmm. Most importantly, is incredibly important to understanding why fixed income is valued the way it is today. So, so that's been the criticism of Ace Greenberg. It's not the paper clips, which are an insignificant rounding error. It's the focus on the minutia and at the same time ignoring the giant exposure. Although, really, to be fair to him, by the time oh five oh six came around. He was chairman emeritus. He wasn't really running things day to day, was he? That that I mean that that's a great case in point. And I'm, you know, I'm not here to point fingers, but I do think that number one, there there's a fantastic book that he wrote, which is called Memos from the Chairman, and in it he has a uh, Memos from the Chairman. Yep, and and you and you should pick up a copy. It's a quick read, but there's a fictional character which he called Chaim Yankel, and <laughs> Chaim Yankel was the guy who came around and said, you know, why does anybody need things, you know, tomorrow? Meaning, why do you do FedEx? Why, right. why do you, why, you know, when I walked into Bear Stearns um, in, in, you know, in 1995, they handed me two things. I think a fire warden hat um, and a direction where to get out, how to get out of the building uh -huh. and, a, and, a, and a paper bag that was probably three inches by two inches that had a box of paper clips, 10 rubber bands um, and, and a, uh, some tape. And they said, this is all you'll need in your entire career. And, and literally, I think I still I didn't even get through the paper clips. But the idea behind it was, is that, you know, 
saving the money is it goes into the partner's pocket. So that's sure. clearly. And at that point in time, Bear was a public company, but is the mentality that you are an owner. You want to protect capital. You want to protect your capital. And in doing so, you want to make sure that your business is profit motivated to generate the highest returns and best risk adjusted returns. And that creates adverse situations as well because people sure. are going to try to shoot the moon at various points of time. And that's just not a bear thing. It was a, it's Wall Street at that Absolutely. point in time. So I, I think that that was one, one element. But it also takes macro management. And risk, we had actually very strong risk management at Bear um, around the horn. But when you put it all together in terms of thinking about how it was related to the boardroom, et cetera, there's now much more rigid input from a risk management group in every bank in every portfolio management, in every buy-side shop today than there probably ever has been. And that simply increased the stake uh, and makes make sure that capital was allocated by, and, and more importantly, criticized those allocations by an independent party. So risk management became something that was, you know, from the back office or maybe not appreciated to actually pretty glamorous and in the spotlight over the past 10 years. I don't know if glamorous is the right word, but certainly it's a focus in every bank now. Compliance and risk management are the two fastest growing departments to say the least but i'll tell you this even at pimco you know when we come in and have due diligences we have entire sectors uh, segments um hours plus with, with our rich risk management team that's global like they're robust and and they're and they're you know sophisticated and they need to understand and do stress testing for portfolios and they want to, they're going to offer their objective view in terms of how you're port positioned what you know what idiosyncratic events you could be defensive or offensively positioned for and and it's a critical element to our to our teams and Pimco success to protect capital for our clients. So let me let me shift gears a little bit on you. We talked about the Fed earlier. Um, some people well let me start with this question. Some people have said the Fed is distorting the bond market. Doesn't the Fed always distort the bond market? Isn't that what raising and lowering rates does? No, it's more. It's not that the Fed is distorting the bond market. It's that the, the they're trying to adjust the market's perceptions of the fair pricing of the bond market. And the case that's nuanced, but but it seems to make sense. Well, I mean, it, it depends if you think that the tail is wagging the dog or the other way around. You know, mm -hmm. the the reality is when you look at how the bond market functions, irrational things happen all the time. Almost any market. Um, as an example, um, two examples, one being, you know, the pricing of dollar funding over year end. There are certain constraints that for that forbid banks from lending dollars over year end. As a result, if you have excess dollars, it's a great time because you're able to earn a huge excess premium to lend those dollars to foreign investors who need to borrow those dollars over year end. Mm -hmm. Same thing goes on with regard to treasuries and fixed income securities. There is a premium assigned to fixed income securities as a safe haven asset. And it used to be that treasuries were the golden child of safe haven assets. And, and they still are to some extent. But when you got to a zero bound in terms of yield, when you had the 10 year at you know sub you know sub two percent, when you had the two year, you know, the two year note at sub one percent, those weren't really attractive safe haven assets because you couldn't necessarily squeeze any more juice out of those. Right. And and the reality is it's hard to make, you know, when during times of stress it's hard to make lemonade out of those lemons because you've already squeezed all the juice out. We call that basically the term premium these days. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, the marketplace right now still has a excess amount of term premium assigned to owning a treasury, meaning they're willing to pay up, earn less yield by owning a treasury than they typically would otherwise. That's the key metric. And what the Fed is trying to do is influence what they view to be that term premium to be over time. Do they want to reduce that term premium? Is they, that, is they that will, the expectation? Well, they want to reduce it because they ultimately think that inflation is going higher over a period of time and shape the yield curve accordingly to those inflation expectations. So that's one element. The other element- Well, let's, wait, before yeah. we move, let's talk about inflation because we really didn't get to that as much as I wanted. Um, it seems to be that there's not a lot of inflation, and inflation has been preternaturally low for Lord knows how long. Are we going to see an uptick in inflation? The The best description I've heard, and I, this may have started, yet another thing that started with Macaulay was we have, we have inflation in the things we need and deflation in the things we want. Uh, and if it's not Paul, it certainly sounds like him. Um, so where are we in the process of inflation, disinflation, deflation, or all of the above? The number one metric 
and this gets back into my comments about optionality for the Fed, but the number one metric that the Fed is going to be focused on is the tightness of the job market and wage pressures on a go-forward basis. Mm-hmm. So, sure, inflation, headline inflation has perked up a little bit. A lot of that has to do with energy pricing over the past few months. And when you approach 65, 70 bucks a barrel of oil, there's going to be some headline pressure, mm-hmm. so to speak. But what they really want to see is an increase in wage pressures, an increase in growth. Uh, and we're starting to see that. Some of it's in relation to the job or to the uh, tax uh, tax reform. You're seeing some some of that just immediately come through in terms of bonus payments, some uh, some increase in, in wages. But they want to see it on a sustained basis. And so getting some of those wage indicators, average hourly earnings, things like that on a upward trajectory, not just flat, but upward trajectory over the next quarter or two, will actually give some sustenance to the Fed to actually continue to move forward, which they they likely will, but I'm saying that's really what they're focused on in terms of that wage, me- in terms of that inflation metric. In, in 2018, we've seen 18 states and I believe it's 22 or 23 municipalities raise their minimum wage. What does that do to quote unquote wage pressure? How it trickles up the pay scale, and how does the Fed perceive? That sort of legislative attempt to drive wages higher—that's yeah, one side of it. You know, they clearly want. You know, th- that's clearly one mandated wage pressure, so to right. speak. So that that's that's going to play into that. But they actually want to see you know other things go into it. You know, they're going to see um, obviously unemployment go clearly below four percent probably this year. They're really? Going, yeah. And, and, and what does that do? And, to- and, and they're going to also look at the broader employment measures. You know, which are hovering you know just north of eight percent. Um, you know, looking to the to see those dip. But it's again, it's simply you know. Is there hidden capacity in terms of jobs in the economy? Uh, maybe some, but we're getting to a diminished a diminished size right now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's articles about uh, about employment employers looking for employees who they probably would have never talked to um, over the past few years. <laughs> People with prison records. Right. I exactly. read that same thing. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, that sort of gets you scratching your head, like you know. Actually, maybe maybe my fifteen, you know, maybe my kid this summer can actually get a job because he's not competing with someone who was, you know, forced forced early retirement, you know, uh, over the summer. But you know, I think that that is that is what we're ultimately looking at. So yes, you you can legislate minimum wage, but they're also looking at the growth segment across the breadth of the across the breadth and the breadth of the uh, the breadth of the employment sector is really what they're going to be focused on. So they're pretty sophisticated in this regard. So here's the pushback to that. It's, well, we've created all these jobs, but a lot of them are in low-paying sectors without benefits or very modest benefits like hospitality and the lower end of healthcare and, and the lower end of retail. Uh, has the quality of the U.S. labor market affected how the Fed perceives wages and inflation. Perhaps. But let me offer something else to that, is that if there is a demand to employ people and people can't, and those employers can't find people to employ, what do you, what is going to happen? Gets back to my whole supply demand. You bring point. some people in who've left the labor force right. and theoretically HB1 visas and other qualified uh, immigrants, um, but eventually you start running out of bodies. Right. And that's the point, is that eventually when you start running out of that supply, you're going to have to facilitate it by getting people to move back to your arena. And the way you do that is you increase your wages. And so that's the key, what they want to. And, and, and this is, we have one thing that hasn't even entered our discussion here today, Barry, is productivity. And I think that's something that we have to focus on. Okay, so let's talk about that because that's one of my favorite questions. I have long been, so some of this has to do with my particular lens in the world of finance. Uh, I see just a huge uptick in productivity and the benefits of software and automation and technology in my job, uh, which you don't necessarily see in the data. So I'm forced to either say, hey, am I just in a field that happens to be unusually productive so my view is skewed? Or is there something wrong with the measurements where we're missing a ton of these productivity gains in broader society? Maybe you're just productive. Way you're more productive as you age. Yeah, but it's not just me. I keep coming back to it. It's not just me. Are, is there? Is there a? It could be both. Is there a, a productivity softness, or is there a measuring There's issue? Both. There's both. I mean, mm-hmm. let's be fair. I mean, it's just like any politics. You get you get evangelists on both sides of the aisle. But like you know, I think at this point we have to be rational as we get older. Why as we, start now? Well, <laughs> we can have a whole different discussion. <laughs> um, uh, 
and, and perhaps a separate podcast. But the the reality is is that you have to as you get older, you want to adapt to product to things that make you more productive. Mm-hmm. That's clearly one side one side of the equation, and it's very important. So the willingness to adapt to things that will make you more productive is actually something that we as human beings are going to have to be. Um, you know, open-minded to over the over the next few decades, um, and, and I think that that's one regard. But the measurement side, the measurement side is a mm. key element, and, and that's very difficult to handicap. You know, personally, I think when you look at things that um, that are 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 misguided in terms of productivity, technology, things like that, uh, we're going to look back in 20, 30 years, just as we did. You know, I, I remember, you know, just as we did 10, 20 years ago, about the impact of the internet, impact of of, of robotics, impact of of simply, um, you know, even in portfolio management, for goodness sake, you know, we're doing more, more stuff, you know, out of, you know, that's, that's not with less bodies and with more less bodies and, and, and not as many fingers in the air. Um, you know, you can pull a lot of charts and, and do a lot of analysis and read a lot of reams of paper, but there's some pretty interesting things we're doing, you know, with, with computer power and some really smart analytics that we weren't doing three, four, five years ago. And that, and that's, and that makes us all that more productive. But that doesn't necessarily show up in the actual Bingo. measurements. Bingo. And I think that we have to, like any piece of data, it's open to interpretation and you have to be rational. And unless you're willing to do that, then you're simply driving down the road at 55 miles an hour, no matter the traffic conditions. And you know what? That's a terrifying place to be. The, there are two questions. I, I want to get to my favorite questions, but there are two things I didn't um, come back to I have to ask about. One is the liquidity issue with trading. The number of uh, trading bond desks on Wall Street and trading firms on Wall Street has declined dramatically. What does this mean for uh, liquidity in the bond market, or is everybody just forced to trade with BlackRock's bond desk and, and they've replaced Wall Street? Or, or PIMCO. Right. Yeah, you two, you guys are coming up on $2 trillion, and yeah. most of that's fixed income. So I would say this, is that it's a great thing for our clients. And the reason is, is that we are able to understand and assess good opportunities and entry points into bond markets and opportunities, and most importantly, earn liquidity premiums for our clients. And what I mean by that is, in the old days, everything used to be sort of lock markets, liquidity, right. you know, liquidity was very open, you know, everybody had a bond desk, things like that. We no, might, no we longer. may get back there, but not to that point. I don't but, think, uh, I don't see that move going back in that direction. But, but do you? you have to admit that the regulatory uh, winds have changed uh, over For the past sure. six months. And so you're not going to get all the way back there. But the point I would make is that when you have inefficiencies in markets, it is an ideal time for fixed income asset managers or asset managers who can who can influence and most importantly, understand and participate in those inefficiencies. And so for clients of PIMCO, that is a great asset in and of itself. Because as a portfolio manager, sure, I'm telling people how to position themselves, but Barry, I'm spending 60% of my day trading. I get in the office at 3.30 in the morning and I'm looking at markets in London and I stayed till 6, 6, 7 o'clock at night looking at how Asia opens. Those are great opportunities for global investors to really take advantage of. So for our clients over the past five to 10 years, as markets, market conditions have evolved or devolved, however you want to look at it, mm-hmm. that's been really powerful. Uh, Ted, what's the most important thing people don't know about your background? <laughs> they, they don't know about my background. Uh, they clearly know I'm from Oklahoma. And, mm-hmm. and so I view that as being a, uh, I view that as being a, uh, um, a, a huge attribute. Um, I, I would say uh, being self, you know, being a self-starter, uh, understanding, understanding, um, sort of how things are put together in a very simplistic term, not to say I'm simple-minded, but Mm -hmm. that upbringing was very powerful. Um, You know, I think the transition really, uh, and and I guess being, being, uh, being a minority in Oklahoma, I was uh, one of the few Jews in Oklahoma. um, I think that (laughs) that actually was a, uh, an, an open-minded experience in a lot of ways. Um, You had friends from all different religions um, sort of come, you know, coming forth. And it wasn't until I moved to the East Coast that I actually had a uh, an ability to reconcile my heritage effectively with that. And so um, I would say that for me, you know, just sort of being that minority for many years was a positive and a negative influence and mm-hmm. experience. Um, but it also was very, very formative. That, in that's, a way. that's quite interesting. Um, tell us about some of your mentors. So your early mentors. We know who your latter mentor was. Yeah. Um, I, so there's there's a couple that come to mind here. Uh, of course, you have, um, you know, 
my you know speech and debate teacher who pulls you out of the you know who who says you probably have a good gift for gab or at least extemporaneous speaking so that's one uh, glinda ferguson mm-hmm. was her name and she sort of molded helped to mold me at least to say something coherent in probably ninth grade um but you also have other people and and there was a gentleman there's two people that I've always had jobs in my entire life and I had owned a lawn mowing business, but the summer before my senior year of high school, I had two people influence me. The first one was a gentleman by the name of Leroy Gilmer. And Leroy was not anybody who was, who, who, who was significant in a noteworthy way, but he was significant in my life because he was a hard worker. He worked three jobs and we worked at a, uh, basically a, a sports bar is what we worked at. And he hired me on a whim because he thought I was probably from the right side, of, right side of the tracks, but hard enough working that I would work any hours I wanted to. So my hours were 5 to 2.30 in the morning, 5 p.m. to 2.30 mm-hmm. in the morning. And what he taught me was the ability to prioritize an industrial kitchen and what to do when you get slammed. So there's nothing like a sporting event where you have 50 tickets of food sitting in front of you and you have to prioritize all those hungry possibly drunk patrons at a very quick point in time. And for me, Leroy was the epitome of hard work and diligence and the understanding how to logically put sequencing together during times of stress. What happened during the- Sounds like it's applicable to future events. So one of the first things that I ask people is what is your first job um, when they interview them, probably land the Calabat. And if they say I had an internship at XYZ Investment Bank as my first job, it's a very short interview because the reality (laughs) is, is that you want people to have real experiences who can understand how to adapt. And, and that's an important thing. And so I'm more real world than probably even most of my brethren at PIMCO in terms of the types of questions they ask because they all want to try to stump people with some intellectual, like quantitative thing. That's one element. But the other person who molded my life was a gentleman by the name of Tom Love. And Tom... Tom Love. Tom Love. And mm-hmm. so you probably don't know Tom, but Tom's worth several billion dollars. And oh, really? what is interesting about Tom Love and... As you, as you get into the gas industry, I had two people who were very close to me in that. But uh, Tom Love had a, had a, had a series of uh, truck stops called Love's Country Stores. And you might see them on the interstates, and there's now tons of them. But back in the early 90s, there, there was a good few, but it was more of a regional type of situation. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I had worked at a – he had very few bad investments in his life, I think. Um, but he had one investment – which was in a car wash. And the car wash business is a very tough business, but I was I worked my daytime shifts at the car wash and I was a salesman and I did some of those cleaning the cars, of course, and things like that. But it was a he, he lost money on it. And and he was so perturbed by this, he actually showed up every day in his um, Oldsmobile truck, as I remember at that point in time. And here I was and he, you know, he, he was very frustrated by the fact that this was a money losing operation. At that point in time, he had invested a million dollars in this property and another million in the plant, and it never came to fruition. And he kept every day coming in to see what was going on and talking to the employees at the ground level. And I made a couple suggestions to him, but he was open-minded in my suggestions. And number two, no matter how big his business became, he was actually very hands-on in terms of understanding how to learn from this failure. And huh. so I learned That's two things from it is it's important to be not an absentee owner, number one, and number two, learn from your failures. And, and Tom, to his, you know, to his day, is obviously quite successful. Let's everybody. talk about books. This is everybody's favorite question. Tell us some books that you think uh, you've read recently or you think are important. Yeah, there, there's a couple here. But, um, you know, obviously, you know, it, it's funny. I, I still to this day ask people interviewing, have you read Liar's Poker? And clearly uh, – that was sort of formative in the in the beginning of the year, or, or there's one called The Bombardiers by Paul, Poe Bronson. And those are just sort of industry books. But Poe Bronson was a big uh, Silicon Valley writer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, but uh, but it's amazing to me that people who are just coming in this industry have no understanding of that history, and mm-hmm. and I and I literally will buy it for them just to give them that sense of history. Not that it was the right or the wrong; it's just the sense of history. Um, philosophically, you have to think about the places like Ayn Rand and the Fountainhead and places like mm-hmm. that. Not necessarily that you I coveted, but I think it, it was sort of an eye-opening experience for me to read it as a young adult. Um, but I actually go back to my upbringing in the oil bust, and there was a book by uh, by a gentleman by the name of Mark Singer um, called uh, Funny Money, and it was the the beginning of the end of the savings and loan crisis. And and what you don't realize, actually, is that the savings and loan crisis, everybody thinks of the continental of Illinois as being the pinnacle of it. But it started from literally a bank branch in the middle of a parking lot called Penn Square mm-hmm. in Oklahoma City. Penn Square Bank did so many bad oil deals that it was out of a, a, a branch that was probably no bigger than an average house, you know, a couple, couple thousand square feet. But yet that was ground zero for the savings and loan crisis. And it's often misunderstood about how 
things grow, become misproportioned and misaligned in terms of risk. And that, as I mentioned before, it was the upbringing I had was how to react to ultimately the, the oil bust. And that was very formative. But that book really gets into the detail of, of how, you know, how euphoria you know, captivates itself, And more importantly, personalities captivate people. And that's an important factor. Tell us what you do outside of the office to either relax or stay fit or mentally unwind. Uh, love to spend time with my family, my wife. You know that's a, that's a good balance. Uh, and I'm, you know I try to work out. You know I, I'm a pretty. I've been doing CrossFit for ten years, and so really that's a. Uh, I'm no, I'm no, How I'm are no, your no, knees? They're great. Believe it or not, I, admittedly I've had a handful of surgeries, but not because of that. But I do it as a stress relief. There's admittedly some movements that I will clearly steer away from, but. The people that you deal that you train with and you work out with are not in your everyday life, and it's fascinating to hear their stories. And you know, my my goal isn't to you know back squat five hundred pounds, but it, it's to stay you know stay fit and more importantly you know, sweat a little and have a good time. And that's what I find. So if a millennial or someone just graduating college comes up to you and says they're interested in a career in fixed income, what sort of advice would you give them? Two pieces of advice: be patient. I just had this conversation with a colleague not so long ago. The expectation is that somebody's making more money around you and you should make as much money around it or that they've given more priority. The reality is that careers take a long time to build and your firm is likely investing in your career in a variety of ways, shape or form that you will be rewarded over time. And so patience is essential. Believe me, people told me that along the way. I had an old boss, his name was Lenny Fetter, who basically helped me to get me under my way and you know, took me places from London to Dublin, Ireland, where I lived for a couple of years, back to New York. The reality is, is that patience is an incredibly powerful thing in a career. And, and, and I think that's number one. And number two, if you really want to be in finance these days, um, no offense to New York because I love New York and spent many years here. Glo uh, finance is a global industry, and if somebody's going to hand you an opportunity, and that could be in London or Munich or Singapore or Tokyo or Sydney or, or Newport Beach, um, run with it. And, and you got to be open-minded enough for you and your significant other to take those opportunities when they come, because opportunities don't fall in your lap very often. And the most successful people are the ones who can capitalize on that and then grow beyond that. And our, our final question, what is it that you know about the fixed income market today that you wish you knew 20 years ago when you were getting started? Um, well, one of the things that Ace Greenberg was was very mad at me about was the fact that I was actually in the fixed income market. He wanted me to be in the equity market because he was not a bond guy, believe it oh, or not. Oh, really? And so w one of the things, and I, and I got, uh, to be honest with you, my being in the fixed income market was, was, market was a little bit by chance, um, but it's something that I became fascinated with. I think one of the things w that would have been really useful in understanding is is how leverage really plays itself into the system and more importantly have a better mapping tool to understand how leverage proliferate is proliferate uh, proliferates throughout the entire global system at this point in time it's something that you think you know but it's very difficult to map out in any articulate way and no matter what people think you know that's something that's you know more of a more of a more of an educated guess as opposed to a precise measurement factor. We have been speaking with Jerome Schneider. He is the head of short-term portfolio management and funding at PIMCO. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch at any of the other 180 or so such conversations. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast. That's MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack team who helps put together these weekly conversations. Uh, Taylor Riggs is our booker. Mike Batnick is our head of research. Medina Parwaner is our audio engineer slash producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> <laughs>